The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever gone out of your way to help a complete stranger? Maybe it's someone struggling to lift something heavy into their car, or someone who's a few bucks short in the checkout line. Whatever the case may be, we all grew up hearing the old cliches that encourage us to do good deeds. Kindness is its own reward. A good deed is never lost. Or if you believe in karma, what goes around comes around. But sometimes, there's a darker side to kindness, one that's often expressed by the cautionary and cynical saying, no good deed goes unpunished. In May 2009, two complete strangers met on a train traveling between Charleston, South Carolina and Washington, DC. The two strangers were both women close in age. One was 28 and the other 30. The slightly older woman had the misfortune of having her wallet stolen, and so the other woman opened up her own and lent some money to the perfect stranger. This random act of kindness would take both women down a very dark and sinister path. In just six weeks' time, one of these women would be dead, proving that sometimes old adages hold true. Heather, what you're telling me is he killed her. He killed her and he hit the body. Join me now as we delve into a case of devious intentions, forgery, and stolen identity. You'll hear how a chance encounter between two women turned into a budding friendship, or so it seemed, on the surface. In May 2009, 28-year-old Kate Waring was sitting in her seat on the Palmetto, an Amtrak passenger train carrying her back home to Charleston, South Carolina, after a fruitless trip to Washington, D.C. She'd recently traveled to Russia and was trying to go back again, but unfortunately, there'd been some paperwork issues with her travel visa. So now, instead of flying to Moscow, Kate was returning home to her parents' home, feeling disappointed. But Kate's nine-and-a-half-hour trip back to Charleston on the train wasn't all filled with gloom and despair because it was during this ride that she struck up a pleasant conversation with a fellow passenger, Heather Camp. And as the train hurtled forward, the two got to talking and it seemed the women were hitting it off, despite being in very different stages in their lives. Kate Waring was born in 1981 to an affluent Southern family in Charleston. Her parents, Tom and Janice, were exceedingly loving and made sure Kate's childhood was filled with all the charm, privilege, and joy a child could want. There were also dance lessons, lavish birthday parties on the sprawling lawn on the Waring's antebellum mansion. And because Kate was such an animal lover, there were always plenty of pets to keep her company. 
Raised as the middle child alongside two brothers, Kate was known as somewhat of a tomboy, fierce, spirited, and never willing to back down from a fight, especially if she was standing up for the underdog. But Kate's idyllic childhood was forever changed when she became the victim of sexual abuse by a friend of the family, a tragedy that left an emotional scar that continued to ache for years. An ache that would leave Kate vulnerable to bouts of depression and eating disorders, and eventually leading to struggles with alcohol and other substances. Still, Kate participated in all things expected from a wealthy Southern Belle, along with attending her debutante ball and dating nice boys from other wealthy affluent families. After high school, Kate went on to college and studied the classics. But for Kate, the urge to numb her emotional pain became more frequent, and soon she was drinking more and more, which led to a roller coaster of dropouts and re-enrollments at college. By the time Kate met Heather Kemp on the train to Charleston, Kate was living back at home with her parents. She'd been in and out of rehab, had a DUI, lost her license, and had been diagnosed with major depression disorder and PTSD. For Kate and her ever-supportive family, her planned trip to Russia had been more than just an opportunity to do some sightseeing in Moscow. Instead, it had represented a positive change in Kate's outlook, mental health, and for the first time in a long time, she was filled with a newfound sense of purpose, adventure, and optimism. And perhaps it was because of this newfound sense of purpose and optimism that Kate and Heather hit it off so well that day on the Amtrak, because Heather was also beginning a new journey of her own. According to Heather, she was recently divorced and had a daughter who was living with her ex-husband in New Jersey. But Heather wasn't passing herself off as a woman down on her luck. Instead, she was pursuing an exciting new opportunity as a pediatric surgeon. She told Kate she was relocating to start a new position at the Children's Hospital in Charleston. She even suggested to Kate that she could maybe get her a job there as well. But Heather had one problem. She revealed to Kate that she'd recently had her wallet stolen. So Kate happily gave her some cash as a show of goodwill and generosity. Of course, Heather promised to pay Kate back she was good for it, she said. After all, she was a pediatric surgeon. So when the two women arrived at the train station in Charleston, they exchanged contact information before going their separate ways. And it wouldn't be long before the women met up again and a fast friendship developed. Soon Kate and Heather were hanging out all the time, mostly going to parties together. Kate even decided to play matchmaker and hooked Heather up with her best friend, Ethan Mack. For the past five years, Ethan and Kate had been friends. Their relationship had never been romantic, only platonic, but she'd become so close with him and his family that she was even named godmother to his nephew. However, despite Kate and Ethan's close friendship, Kate's parents had never even personally met Ethan. In fact, her father, Tom, only knew about Ethan because Kate would mention him from time to time. But among her friends, Kate referred to Ethan as her best friend and considered him a protective older brother. 
and after she met Heather Camp, she thought they'd make a perfect match. And it turned out, she was right. Immediately, Ethan and Heather hit it off, and within a few weeks, Heather had already moved into Ethan's apartment. When the time came for Heather to pay Kate back for the money she borrowed on the train, a terrible tragedy struck. Heather told Kate that her two-year-old daughter, the one living with her ex-husband, had just been killed in a car accident in New Jersey. Obviously, Kate felt terrible and told her not to worry about paying her back. But when Kate told her parents about her new friend's tragic loss, Kate's mother Janice began noticing some alarming red flags about Heather. There just seemed to be something off about her. She wondered why a grieving mother wouldn't rush to New Jersey to attend her daughter's funeral. And why had Heather, a pediatric surgeon, been willing to move into Ethan's cramped, dingy apartment? Shouldn't a pediatric surgeon have the financial means to live somewhere nicer? And then there was something else that had really stuck out to her. Janice had only personally met Heather one time while she was at the wearing home doing her laundry. It was then that Heather brought up the loss of her child. But to Janice's shock, she wasn't referring to her daughter who just died in a tragic car accident, but to a son who died from leukemia. During the conversation, Heather explained to Janice that her and her ex-husband had been forced to make the decision to, quote, pull the plug and let the child die. Hearing Heather use such callous phrasing was enough to convince her that Heather was making it all up. So she warned Kate that she believed Heather was a scam artist, using other people's sympathy as a means of manipulation. But Kate, always the champion for the underdog, waved off her mother's concerns. And it's not that she didn't see some red flags in Heather too. It was odd for a pediatric surgeon to drink and party so much. Not to mention that Heather seemed to have a remarkable amount of free time for a doctor. For reasons only known to Kate, she willingly looked the other way and ignored the numerous red flags about her new friend. But not for much longer. Because something else came up that made Kate question everything she knew about Heather. Something that made Kate decide she was ready to not only end her new friendship with her, but also cut off ties with her best friend, her protector, Ethan. Kate discovered that Heather had taken out several credit cards in her name and that she tried to cash several forged checks from her account. She also suspected Ethan was in on it as well. But before she had the chance to confront them directly, Ethan and Heather called Kate with incredibly exciting news. They told her that Heather was pregnant with Ethan's child just six weeks after Kate had met Heather on the train, and they invited Kate to come out to dinner with them on Friday, June 12th, to mark the occasion. Soon after going to the gym and running a few errands, Kate met Ethan and Heather at a steakhouse to celebrate. They had dinner and paid their bill around 11.30 p.m. It was the last time anyone would ever see Kate alive. The next day on June 13th, 2009, Tom and Janice Waring were staying at their family's summer home just outside of Charleston. 
when Tom realized he hadn't heard from his daughter. This was strange for Kate because she was constantly on the phone and was always in touch with her parents, usually hourly. They feared her lack of communication might be a sign that Kate had fallen back into addiction. Worried about their daughter, Janice and Tom drove back to Charleston to check in on her. But when they pulled into the driveway, there was a moment of relief because all the lights were on. Surely they thought Kate must be inside, but the relief didn't last long. Despite the lights being on, Kate wasn't home. Everything inside the house appeared normal enough, but when they checked Kate's bedroom, they saw that all her medications were still there. And Kate never left the house without her medications, something she was required to take periodically throughout the day. To them, this meant Kate had left the house, intending to return shortly. But if this was the case, why wasn't she answering her phone? It didn't make any sense, especially for a person who was quite literally in constant contact with her parents. With a daughter prone to addiction, a number of scenarios played out in their minds. Maybe Kate had relapsed and was feeling ashamed, not quite ready to talk to her parents about it. From there, the possible scenarios got darker and darker. Maybe she was in the middle of a bender. Maybe she'd been arrested. Or worse, maybe she'd had an accident and was at the hospital somewhere. The Warings made a round of phone calls to the police station and local hospitals. They called Kate's friends, but no one had heard from her. They contemplated about calling the police and filing out a missing persons report. After all, their daughter was 28 years old, and they'd been through similar situations like this before. Not to mention, it was still the weekend, a Saturday. Perhaps they were just overreacting. Ultimately, Janice and Tom decided to give it until Monday before alerting authorities, all the while consumed by the anxious feeling of waiting. And by Monday morning, the Warings still hadn't heard a word from their daughter. On the verge of calling police, Tom suddenly received a strange phone call from the bank. Someone was trying to cash a $4,500 check from his daughter's account. As the signatory on his daughter's bank account, Tom was alerted by the bank when they'd become suspicious by what appeared to be a forged signature on one of Kate's checks. But to Tom, even the idea that Kate would write a $4,500 check seemed ludicrous because he knew very well that Kate had less than $100 in her account. To make matters even more suspicious for Tom, this wasn't the first call he'd gotten from the bank recently. Less than a week before, the bank had called to let him know that a check made out to Ethan Mack had bounced from Kate's account. When he questioned Kate about the check, she was evasive about why she owed her friends so much money. Instead, Kate responded by telling her father that she'd handle it. Shortly after hearing from the bank, Tom called police to report his daughter missing. But when he did, the Charleston Police Department didn't react with quite the sense of urgency Tom was expecting or hoping for. Police did check Kate's phone records, which showed her phone had last pinged on James Island, just a few miles away from her home. 
But this was 2009, and cell phone tracking wasn't quite as precise as it is today. In fact, the tower on James Island was the cell tower most likely to be pinged from the Waring's house if the other closest tower was too overloaded at the time of the call. Police didn't seem to consider the discovery to be a big red flag, but they did follow up on Tom's report of someone attempting to cash a forged check. And when police looked at the surveillance video, they discovered that person was Ethan Mack. Police then went to Ethan's house, where he was supposedly still living at home with his mother. They had no idea that his primary residence was actually in an apartment on James Island he'd been sharing with Heather. When approached by police, Ethan appeared more than willing to help. He even invited the detectives inside his mother's house to search his bedroom, but he never mentioned his apartment. They asked him about the check he'd tried to cash, but Ethan vehemently denied that the signature was forged. According to him, Kate had borrowed money from him to purchase jewelry and was simply repaying him. Ethan told investigators that he'd had dinner with Kate on Friday night and dropped her off at her home at approximately 11.30 p.m. He seemed concerned for his friend and even provided the detectives with text messages from Kate that seemed to corroborate his story. For Tom and Janice, they felt police were being all too willing to accept Ethan's explanation and being far too nonchalant in general about their missing daughter. Their frustrations reached a fever pitch when the Charleston police chief pointed out that there was no real evidence of foul play. Tom, who was a well-respected defense attorney in the city, was infuriated by their lack of response, so he decided to call in a favor from a friend and fellow defense lawyer, Andy Savage. Andy Savage immediately went into assembling a group of private investigators, each with their own set of specialized skills. They were retired cops, Bill Capps, James Rudolph, and Bobby Minter, and they called themselves The A-Team. The A-Team decided to first start their own investigation with victimology. They wanted to know more about Kate, who she was, and who the people were in her life. The A-Team then retraced Kate's steps on June 12th and discovered there'd been an altercation between Kate and another woman at the gym, a woman whose soon-to-be ex-husband had been having an ongoing affair with Kate, and the woman knew about it. As it happened, that day the woman had seen Kate working out close to her husband and decided to confront her about it. The A-Team spoke with the unhappy couple, and it turned out that the husband had given Kate a ride to an appointment with her therapist earlier that same day. According to him, Kate had been her usual self, but beyond that, he had an airtight alibi for the time frame Kate had gone missing, and so did his wife. It was looking like a dead-end lead. That's until the husband told the A-team something interesting. He said that Kate had called him twice that Friday night. In the first call, just after 10 p.m., Kate said she was still at dinner with Ethan, and she definitely sounded like she'd been drinking. When Kate called the second time, it was after midnight. This time she told him she was going to Ethan's apartment. This was odd, because Ethan had told police and the A-team 
that he dropped Kate off at home around 11.30 p.m. But then, well after midnight, Kate texted him one more time. A cryptic sentence that didn't make much sense to him. I'm off to Greenville to pick up some lovely. It didn't make much sense. The A-team continued their investigation by speaking to another man Kate had been casually seen, a lawyer who was also quickly ruled out as a suspect. But this lawyer did give some valuable new information. Just the day before Kate disappeared, she'd left him a voicemail and she sounded angry. She wanted him to sue someone for stealing her identity and taking credit cards out in her name. This information brought the A-team full circle back to Ethan Mack, the one caught in the surveillance video attempting to cash a forged check on Kate's account. And once they really started looking into Ethan, it didn't take long for them to figure out that Ethan had lied to police about where he lived. He didn't still live at home with his mother, but in an apartment with his girlfriend, Heather Camp, on James Island the very last place Kate's phone had pinged. Suddenly, the pieces of the puzzle were coming together. And now, not only were they looking into Ethan, they also wanted to know more about Heather. So they started their investigation into her by doing a basic good old Google search. And they were shocked by what they discovered. It turned out that Heather went by many different names. Angelica Camp, Angelica Lopez, Heather Walker, and Heather Camp. She was known as a grifter, a con woman, a liar who'd been criminally charged in four states for forgery-related charges and had been convicted of armed robbery in California. Let's look at motive. Who's got motive in this case? Heather's a person that creates her own worlds. She creates places where she's important. She goes from town to town. She's like a cancer, to be honest. She goes from town to town, destroying things. But what she does originally, she creates this fantasy world. Practically everything Heather told Kate about herself was a complete lie. But why? Heather Camp had had a difficult childhood, having suffered sexual and physical abuse in and out of foster care. At the age of five, she was admitted to a mental health facility where she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder. Throughout her adult life, Heather had a long history of impersonating doctors, just like she'd done the day she met Kate on the train. But instead of being a pediatric surgeon starting a new job in Charleston, the real reason she was on the train was because she'd taken her cosplay of a pediatrician way too far. Heather had drawn blood from a six-year-old girl in Pennsylvania the girl was a niece of a man she was dating, and when she later presented the results to the girl's parents, which supposedly showed the girl was bipolar and had low calcium levels, the parents grew suspicious and called the police. But Heather took off before the police could catch up to her. One of Heather's other favorite scams was to tell a man she was pregnant with his child. Her goal was to move in as quickly as possible and swindle whatever she could, racking up credit card debt in the man's name. It would eventually come to light that this was the exact scam Heather was running on Ethan as well. And if you haven't guessed it by now, she was never really pregnant with this child. Before meeting Ethan, 
Heather had already been married three times and had four children. And despite the stories she told to the Warings, all of her children were well and very much alive. There was, however, one time when her infant son had been hospitalized with pneumonia, but Heather didn't stay vigilant next to his bedside. Instead, she took off 370 miles to the happiest place on Earth, Disneyland, and rode the roller coasters. She lost custody of her children long ago. That day on the train, Heather was on her way to live with another man whom she'd met online. But she changed plans once she met Kate, who'd been so willing to help her out with money. And of course, the story she'd given Kate about her stolen wallet had been a complete fabrication as well. As the A-Team learned more and more about the real Heather Camp, they knew they were onto something big. Her history of pretending to be a doctor was complete evidence she was a liar. But what stood out even more was Heather's long rap sheet with forgery. They believed they knew who forged Kate's signature on the check Ethan had tried to cash. All they needed now was a sample of Heather's handwriting. The A-Team got in touch with the landlord of Ethan's apartment, and luckily, it turned out the landlord attended the same church as a member of the A-Team. The landlord didn't need much convincing to help out with the investigation. Ethan and Heather had been horrible tenants, and he was already planning to evict them. But instead, the A-Team convinced him not to. They asked the landlord to draft up some IOUs for Heather and Ethan to sign. In the meantime, the A-Team would secretly cover the rent. This was important, not just for the landlord, but because they didn't want Ethan and Heather to have any reason to skip town. The landlord got the paperwork signed by Heather, and a handwriting analysis quickly confirmed she'd been the one who forged Kate's check. Now that they had confirmation, it was time to ramp up the investigation further. The landlord told Ethan and Heather that their apartment needed to be sprayed for bed bugs. The A-Team dressed up as exterminators and, with the landlord, searched Ethan's apartment. Being PIs, they weren't beholden to the same rules regarding search warrants as the police. After placing a GPS tracker on Ethan's car, they set up surveillance on the couple. That's when they discovered Ethan going to different pawn shops to sell off jewelry. The fact that Ethan had claimed Kate had borrowed money from him to buy jewelry seemed more than just a coincidence. They also noticed while watching the couple that while Ethan went to work, Heather did other things, like spending a lot of time with their neighbor, Terry Williams. The two would take off together committing bank fraud by kiting checks, a scam where someone writes a check from an account with insufficient funds and deposits it into another account. The person then withdraws the cash before the bank is notified of the insufficient funds. After observing Terry Williams, the A-Team decided he seemed like the kind of person who might be willing to talk if they waved some cash under his nose. So they knocked on his door and offered him some money in exchange for information about the night Kate had gone missing. But what the A-Team didn't know was that at the very same moment they went to his house, Heather was there in one of the bedrooms. When she heard the investigators offering Terry money, 
She flew into a rage and busted out of the room while she was getting dressed and accused them of trying to get people to roll on her. Without Terry having to say a word, Heather's reaction was all the confirmation they needed to know that Terry likely had the information about the night Kate disappeared and that Heather and Ethan were most likely the ones responsible. A few days later, it seemed the stack of cash had blazed into Terry's mind. He was short on his rent, and that money would solve a lot of problems for him. So Terry called the office of Andy Savage and broke the case wide open. He told them that Heather and Ethan had given him an iPod as a gift for helping the couple move something heavy. On the back of the iPod, there was a name inscribed, and it was Kate Waring. The last time Kate was seen with her iPod, she was at the gym the Friday she went missing. After doing all the heavy lifting, the A-team turned everything they discovered over to police. A short while later, both Ethan and Heather were arrested for forgery and obstruction of justice. The murder charge would come later. You understand that you're being charged with obstruction of justice and forgery? Yes, sir. Okay. You've not been charged with murder. No, I put that on me, not yet. But it's kind of. Not necessarily. Obstruction of justice. Trying to forge you a kick. You can take a handwriting sample, whatever. I ain't forge you a kick. Listen, the obstruction of justice charge is a 10 year charge. 10 years. I know, that's a long time. That's a long time. 25 years is a long time, one year is a long time, two years is a long Thank time. Thank you. Thank you. We don't want to do this. Obstruction of justice was when you lie regarding an investigation. It's that simple. It's that simple. You're right about that. Because y'all put a flag out there with $30,000 on them and then the little private investigator. 50000 well, fuck you, however it is, then the little private investigator dude ride around in the hood and ride around at different places with his little duffel bag of money going telling this person, oh yeah, you used to ever see her with this person or this person, you ever see him with this girl, yeah, these two right here, the one that's the suspect and her murder, this and that, yeah, I got this money right here, this $15,000 right here in this bag right now, you can tell me something. So... Okay. So you okay. wonder why would people would come and tell y'all anything? Well, you know what? You know how much, how much uh, faith, how much credit I give those people? No. I must say I give them a whole lot of faith, dog. Y'all come and lock me up behind us. We didn't lock you up because of what they said. We locked you up because of what she said. Who's telling Who's the truth? Are you lying? Or is, or is Angelica lying? Lying about what? Well, Angelica's telling us a story that's completely opposite so of yours. You just put so it Yeah, I can blow up. Yeah, I blow up sometimes. So yeah, who's I lying? Mad about things. Are you lying so, or is Angelica lying? Who lying? I'm you tell lying. me who's lying. lying. So Angelica's a liar. Why not a liar? Angelica's no, pointing her finger at you, saying that you did it. Well, wherever you can see however it is. I'm not saying it. Angelica is. Heather was always one to look out for Heather, and despite her fury with the A-team for trying to get a witness to roll on her, she turned around and did the exact same thing to Ethan the first chance she got. 
Heather suddenly began cooperating with the authorities and offered a full confession in exchange for pleading down her charges to manslaughter. She was guilty, she said, but claimed to be mentally ill. According to her story, she'd simply been going along with her husband's plans. That's right, just before the arrest, Heather and Ethan had gotten married with the belief they wouldn't have to testify against each other. But despite that, Heather was quick to offer testimony against Ethan in exchange for a milder sentence. According to Heather, on the night Kate went missing, the trio went back to Ethan's apartment after having dinner together at the Wasabi Steakhouse. If Kate was concerned about Heather stealing her identity and both of her friends attempting to steal from her, it seemed she decided to ignore it that Friday night. When they got back to Ethan's place just before midnight, Heather said they started playing a game, but not a board game or card game. Instead, according to Heather, the couple persuaded Kate to try and fit into a suitcase. Ethan offered her 20 bucks if she could do it. Being a good sport, Heather said Kate tried to squeeze herself inside. But once she got in, Heather said Ethan pulled out a taser and stunned Kate. At first, Kate was annoyed thinking it was still a game and told Ethan to stop, but he didn't. And when he realized the taser wasn't powerful enough to knock her out, he grabbed a wine bottle and hit her over the head with it until the bottle broke and Kate fell unconscious. The entire time Kate was being assaulted, Heather admitted to being right there, holding Kate still. Once Kate fell unconscious, Heather said her and Ethan put her in the bathtub and drowned her. In an attempt to minimize her role in Kate's murder, Heather claimed all she did was turn on the taps and fill the bathtub with water. She would later continue to do so in a post-trial interview on the Savage Report. All I did was turn on the water and I held down the suitcase. I took no participation in tasing her and and hitting her upside the head with the water and the, with the wine bottle. I, I never did anything, no physical violence to her. When asked in court if Kate was still alive when she was submerged in the tub, Heather responded yes. She said she knew because she saw bubbles, meaning Heather stood there and watched Kate die. Then, according to Heather, with Kate's body still in the bathtub, Ethan and Heather rifled through her purse and took her checks, sunglasses, iPod, and whatever else appealed to them. He then sent text messages from Kate's phone to himself to make it look like Kate was home. Heather said they then went to a supermarket where Ethan went in alone and purchased a mop, gloves, and rubber dish gloves, all while Kate was still in the bathtub in his apartment. After arriving home, the couple pulled Kate's body from the tub into the kitchen and took her jewelry and clothes. Then Ethan took a nap. Later, they rented a car, placed Kate's body in the trunk, and drove out to Wadmilla Island and dumped her body. The motive? Heather and Ethan had become worried that Kate had caught on to their identity theft scam. And more than that, they knew Kate's father, Tom, was a lawyer. They feared Kate would turn them in. My husband was very worried about jail. 
But but when you say he was worried about going to jail, why would he have been worried about going to jail? Kate had threatened to tell her father that we had um, used, we were using her credit card, and then we knew he knew that she was going to find out that we had wrote checks on her account. So, um, hence when she found that out, the checks were bound, you know, were going through, were being forged. That's just another thing to put us in jail for. Despite the arrests and progress in the case, it took 109 days for the Waring family to finally locate their daughter's remains, which only happened after Heather agreed to cooperate and revealed they'd left her body in a wooded area on Wadmala Island, an area Ethan was very familiar with since he worked there once. And yet again, it was a member of the A-team who'd actually found Kate. 911, what's the address of emergency? Yes, ma'am, this is Robert Minter. Okay, you need police fire or EMS, sir? Police. What, what's the address, hon? Wait, there's no address. It's in the woods. What, what, we found the body of um, Kate Waring. You believe you found the body of Kate Waring? Yes, yes. we know we did. In the woods? Yes. Ethan pled not guilty to the charges, but at trial, he was convicted of obstruction of justice and forgery. However, the judge declared a mistrial on the murder charge when the jury couldn't unanimously agree. The state moved to have a retrial. While in jail awaiting a second murder trial, Ethan hatched a plan to make it look like it was Heather who murdered Kate, claiming he played no role in the crime. He asked another prisoner to pretend he'd overheard Heather telling Ethan she was sorry for killing Kate and pinning it on him. But of course, the other prisoner rolled on Ethan and used his information as a leverage for himself. When Ethan's scheme fell apart, rather than risking another murder trial, Ethan Mack opted to enter an Alford plea in April 2011, acknowledging voluntary manslaughter without admitting to guilt. The decision allowed him to accept the evidence presented against him while avoiding the uncertainties of a lengthy court process. Ultimately, Ethan was sentenced to 25 years for the murder of Kate Waring. But that wasn't the end of the story. The plea bargain that Heather had struck to reduce her charges to manslaughter was contingent on her testifying truthfully at Ethan's trial. But the prosecution discovered numerous lies throughout her testimony. In fact, Heather's propensity to lie was downright pathological. I caught her lying on the stand um, more times than I could count. A lot of witnesses are flawed, but she was probably uh, one of the worst I've ever seen. Again, Ms. Camp, I'm going to ask you about some statements, and I would like you to tell me if, whether or not you made those statements. I don't recall saying any, but I mean, it's possible I said any, but I don't recall. Could it be that you told so many lies you couldn't remember what they all were? No. Well, then why couldn't you recall what you'd said? Because it's been a while to... It's been a while. Since October to January was a while? Yeah, for me it is. When asked about her habit for telling lies on the Savage Report, Heather responded, as you might expect, by lying about being a pathological liar. I mean, you would agree you're a pathological liar? No, I would not. No. No, why not? I, I thought that was a diagnosis, but that's not. 
it's not, I don't know if it's a diagnostic, a diagnosis or not, but I do, I, I would have to say that if you're going to call a person a pathological liar, you would have to be more specific. You would have to say, is this a person with, with illnesses or without medical illnesses? Is this a person on medications or not on medications? Because a pathological liar, from what I understand the terminology to be, is somebody who lies consistently and, and knowingly does so. Um, but don't you do that? I don't do that. Um, you did throughout this whole trial, though. Right? I mean, I've, I've lied. I lied to help my husband, yes. But sometimes I didn't knowingly lie. In the end, the state revoked her plea deal, and she was sentenced to 39 years in prison, 14 more years than Ethan. One of the most difficult aspects to reconcile within this tragic story is how Ethan Mack could have so easily betrayed and murdered a person he considered to be his best friend. During the entire time Ethan and Kate had been friends, there's absolutely nothing to indicate that he'd ever stolen anything from Kate or even mistreated her in any way. It seemed the only difference had been Heather. Here's how Heather answered that question in her interview with Dan Crossy on The Savage Report. A lot of people, including the prosecutor, the judge, the family, all believe you were the mastermind of this murder. Were you? No, I was not. But today in court, and I'm going back to what the prosecutor had to say, the prosecutor said that this was, and I'm using her words, this was your kill. This was the Heather Camp show and that this was Heather Camp's kill. You were the mastermind. You were the violent one. True or not true? No, it's not true. Her thing was, and the families is they couldn't get Ethan because I lied or else they would have got him for murder and they most likely would have. So place the blame all on me. So it makes her look, she's got voters. She's got to, you know, stand in front of the community and say, well, they got somebody. So pin it on somebody. They pinned it all on me. And I'm fine with that. If that's what had to have been done for them to make, to make the family feel better, then, then that's fine but that's not the way it was. While Heather is clearly attempting to evade responsibility, it is true that to blame everything on Heather, as Ethan Mack's lawyer attempted to do during his trial, is far too easy. Heather and Ethan on their own may never have committed murder, but together, they became a deadly duo. Heather had only known Kate for six weeks Yet Ethan had known her for years. He claimed to be her protector. They had matching keychains. She was his nephew's godmother. How could a new relationship of less than two months turn him into a vicious murderer, willing to dispose his best friend's body and steal whatever he could from her? Heather later admitted that she was jealous of Kate's beauty and wealth. She disliked how much time Ethan and Kate were spending together, and it seemed Ethan was more than willing to appease Heather's insecurities. Prior to her plea deal being overturned, Heather Camp had told investigators exactly what happened that terrible night Kate went missing. Heather, what we were wanting to do now is have you show us uh, where the suitcase was, where Catherine was, when uh, Ethan struck her with the wine bottles. Okay, Kate was still in the suitcase. The case was open. 
um, grabbed the wine bottle, came like right on here. I, I moved. I mean, I'm standing here. He's standing. Mm -hmm. He's standing here. He picks up the wine bottle. He had it reverse twice. For the first two times, uh, it, you could hear like a crunch, but the bottle didn't break. The third time was the time that the bottom of it broke, but the top part was still intact. He lifted her out and put her on the thing, and then I helped him drag the, the blanket she was on from the the living room floor into the kitchen where she was sleeping this way. And she in the bathroom, he had already put the bags over her feet and her, um, her head. So um, from that point, a couple of hours till the morning, he went to the store and got the other stuff. I don't remember which store it was. He got the mop, the the oxyclean stuff, two pairs of gloves, and stuff. Um, he uh, he cleaned the inside of the house, walls, bathroom, everything. While she was still on the kitchen yes, floor. Yes, sir. It was only six weeks from the time the women met on the train to Kate's murder. Ethan chose his new girlfriend of a few weeks over a five-year friendship with Kate, his supposed best friend. He chose greed and what he thought would be easy money. He believed Heather Camp's lie that she was pregnant and believed having a child was going to be hard on his wallet. Heather killed Kate out of jealousy and greed. She took the life of her new friend, who was so willing to help her out that day on the train, for a check that would never be cashed. In honor of Kate's life, the Waring family paid tribute to her love of animals by setting up a fund in her name, the Kate P. Waring Fund, which helps rehabilitate animals with behavioral issues so they can be placed in loving homes. The fund acknowledges that Kate's life was filled with giving animals second chances. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Severed Affair, The Gruesome Murder of Shad Therion. Wisconsin has had more than its fair share of horrific murders and high-profile criminal cases. From the notorious Jeffrey Dahmer to the gruesome Ed Gein. On a cold night in February 2022, another name was added to the list of Wisconsin's worst. Taylor Shabiznis. Tara had woken me up, said she uh, found my son's head in a bucket. I'm dumbfounded, didn't believe her. Thought she was having a mental issue or something. From the outset, the details of the case shocked even the most hardened detectives and traumatized young rookies. If we could get more answers sooner rather than later, that'd be appreciated. We've got quite a bit of blood down here. Law and Crime has reported on the case from the beginning. Using Law and Crime's gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage, we've woven an in-depth narrative. I went downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs to the right, there was a green bucket with a shower towel on top of it. Lifted the towel off, and there was, in fact, a human severed head in the bucket. Severed Affair. The gruesome murder of Shad Therion is a law and crime original podcast 
that uses exclusive audio and court footage to piece together the story. Beyond the stack of mattresses, there appear to be blood on the floor and then small chunks of human flesh. You can listen to Severed Affair exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.